Welcome to the Next Level Show, a health and fitness podcast with a little bit of life. Hosted by Jonathan Alvarez, Gabriel Contreras, and Mike Nillis. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Next Level Show. We have an amazing episode ready for you guys. We actually have the privilege of having Ms. Dr. Amy Bender on with us. Uh, she's a sleep doctor. Um, so we just really... We've mentioned in other episodes how much we know the importance of sleep and the impact it has on overall health, performance, and since we kind of have people in all different demographics, we know that anybody that tunes in can definitely you know, get tremendous value from this episode. Uh, Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. Um, so Amy, I kind of wanted to dive in because we have a lot of, you know, questions revolving around sleep. You know, it's something that I personally, out of the, I think out of the three co-hosts here struggles the most uh, with just finding consistent recovery and, and I can kind of have everything dialed in with nutrition and training, but man, I just, I want, and I know a lot of people are probably on the same boat, but before we get started, like, what are the biggest, you know, common sleep myths that, you know, you probably hear maybe from clients or maybe some misconceptions that people are still maybe uh, talking about out there? Yes. I mean, there's a number of sleep myths out there. I would say potentially the top two that I'm hearing a lot are related to people thinking that they can get by on less sleep. So they think they're a short sleeper. Um, and then number two, I would say, is related to snoring. So snoring not that big of a deal. Um, I can go, I'll go deep into those. So if we start with the first one, um, I'm perfectly fine on less sleep. I'm, I must be a short sleeper. I hear that a lot. Um, when they look, when you look into the research, there are, there are definitely short sleepers out there. So recently they found that uh, a father-son duo who were, getting, who were doing very well on four and a half to five and a half hours of sleep each night, they had no mood impairments, their performance was good. But when they looked at how common that genetic trait was, they actually found that less than one in four million people had this genetic trait. So I think people need to keep in mind that the chances are that you are a, a short sleeper is very, very slim and that people should really be aiming to get a minimum of seven hours of sleep per night for optimal performance. Then if we look at, if we look into snoring, so many people believe, you know, it's, it, there's cartoons, there's jokes of snoring. Mm -hmm. um, that it's no big deal, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. But what we do find is that 50% of snorers have sleep apnea, where mm -hmm. they stop breathing in the middle of the night. Um, and it's associated with very negative health outcomes. So 50% of those who snore have sleep apnea. So that's one thing. Um, number two, even in those who don't snore, there's been shown to have a relationship with a buildup of plaque in your artery walls um, just mm. from snoring itself, not necessarily from um, sleep apnea. And then number three, I would say uh, it can cause disturbance to your partner's sleep as well. So it's not just about your own sleep quality, but 
that noise can be disturbing your partner's sleep as well. So I would say definitely um, get it checked out if you are a snorer. Go to a, a accredited sleep lab and, and really look into that and try and get it treated. Uh, yeah, I think I find that it's common as like people uh, as people age it, you know, I know my grandfather is a king of snore. Uh, my dad's starting to rank up there as well. Um, I don't know if it's more, is it more common in men than women for snoring? That is true. Yes. And um, it is more common in men. And then as you age, the likelihood increases. So I think mm -hmm. as you hit age 40, um, your chances of snoring just keeps going up and up. Wow. That's, that's not good news for any of us on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 40 myself, so I'm right there with you. Well, some closer than others. <laughs> um, boys, I, I mean, I have the uh, next question here. I just really wanted to, because it's been some, some things have been talked about, about the mono, bi, and polyphasic sleep patterns. Um, if you, if I don't know, Amy, if you wanted to break down maybe a couple, you know, kind of what are the differences and... I know that uh, the polyphasic one is the one that's kind of broken into intervals uh, that you sleep very uh, per, uh, sporadic throughout the day, just less durations. Yes. So um, I, that is another common sleep myth as well, I guess you could say, is that um, uh. people, yes, people think that you can kind of cheat the sleep system and that you can sleep in 90 minute cycles um, and do this, you know, throughout the day, sleep and take short naps like that, 90 minute naps. And then you can end up sleeping less overall if you, if you use this polyphasic sleep uh, schedule. But in reality, it, it doesn't work that way. So ideally the best um, sleep schedule that you wanna have is more of a, uh, the majority of your sleep occurring at night when our bodies are meant to be asleep, and then potentially add in a short nap during the day if you can, if you can fit that in. Um, there are a lot, you know, about 25% of us are, maybe it's not that high, uh, maybe 15% are night shift workers or shift mm. workers. Um, you know, so there are scenarios where you, you can't sleep all at night. So in those situations, you know, you want to do the best that you can. And in one of the studies I was involved in, we were looking at um, a consolidated chunk of sleep at night. So a 10 hour opportunity of sleep at night versus a 10 hour opportunity of sleep during the day versus a split sleep schedule where they did five hours at night and five hours during the day. Mm. And we found that the consolidated nighttime schedule, those people ended up getting the most amount of sleep. So it was about eight and a half hours versus the daytime sleep schedule, which ended up getting two hours less sleep. So they were at about six and a half hours. And then the split sleep schedule kind of fell in between there. Um, so ideally to, you know, really optimize and get the most amount of sleep that you can, you want to go for that that nighttime consolidated chunk of sleep. However, in this study, we found that there was no difference in performance between the three conditions. Now, this was uh, just a week that we were studying them. So 
there could be accumulation of that sleep debt occurring later on. But um, for just that week, we found no difference in performance. However, those who did the sleep, split sleep schedule and those who slept during the day reported higher levels of sleepiness. Mm. So yeah, I think um, if you have the option, you know, definitely opt for that nighttime chunk of sleep, maybe add in a short little nap, but just be aware if you are a night shift worker that, you know, you can make um, sleeping during the day work. It just takes a little bit more work um, and a little bit more strategy in doing that. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. I've got a client who does that. She kind of flip-flops back and forth between uh, sleeping at night and then when she goes into a nighttime shift week, she sleeps during the day and she, it doesn't really go so well for her, but she does the best she can with it. Um, but I was, I was wondering, and this always seems to work out for me whenever I have a poor night of sleep. I always feel like I make up for it and I'm doing like air quotes when I say make up for it the next night. Is there any like backing to that concept where if I have a, a crappy night of sleep, the next night I, I sleep, you know, nine or 10 hours that night, does it really make up for it in that way? Or is that just how I feel about it? No, I think um, with uh, sleep deprivation and with a poor night's sleep, the following night we'll see more deeper sleep occurring. So this was really apparent when I was working in the sleep lab um, where we were doing sleep deprivation studies up to 62 hours. So two full nights Ooh. without sleep. Yes. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> no, and um, it was really, it was very apparent just by looking at the sleep EEG, the brain waves, that these participants, when they missed a night of sleep, that they had much more deep sleep occurring in that first part of the night and throughout the sleep period. Um, so yes, I believe you can make up for lost sleep um, and that is reflected in the brainwave activity. So you'll have deeper sleep with a poor night's sleep. Um, we just don't wanna do that chronically and we don't want to you know, vary that by a lot throughout the week. So for example, if you're getting five and a half hours of sleep during the week, and then you're sleeping in three, four hours on the weekend, it's not a good combination because, you know, your brain and your body doesn't know when to be asleep and when to be awake. So if I'm sleeping in till noon on Saturday and Sunday, you know, come Sunday night, I'm not going to be tired at my usual bedtime. And so it's just going to Im negatively impact me that week. So I would say try and keep your sleep schedule as consistent as possible within about an hour and a half to two hours, um, you know, even on the weekend. I wanted to piggyback a little bit. Uh, I think that's phenomenal advice because I think that's what I used to do a lot is that I used to sleep so poorly during the week in short bursts and then I would try to make up for it on the weekends, but I felt like I would never necessarily uh, find my rhythm. But on the, st on the topic of our night shift workers, a lot of our you know clients I tend to have is a lot of nurses and or just people that I know that work in uh, uh, jails or whatever and they work overnight. 
Um, what are some advice that you said that there is a way to make it better and it does take a little bit more effort on their behalf to kind of feel a little bit normal? Um, obviously, we know that, you know, the sun has a lot to do with it, light and all that. But um, what are some advice that you would give to these people that are having, you know, just because that's how they make their living? Yes, it's a great question. I actually hear that question quite a bit. Um, there are a lot of night shift workers out there and they're looking for strategies to help them. So number one, I would say, um, you know, in an ideal scenario, you would have, you would have the same sleep schedule on your days off as you do on your days on. Mm -hmm. However, that's not really realistic. Yeah. So, um, Ideally, that'd be the, the best situation. However, many people cannot accommodate that. So the next best, best option would be to sleep in late, as late as you can on your days off and go to bed later on your days off. So if I'm working three night shifts um, in a row and then the, you know, I'm off that morning, I might and I don't have night shifts coming up for a few days, I might just take more of a shorter nap coming off of that last night shift so that I'm more easily able to fall asleep that night. Mm. But that night, I would go to bed a little bit later than you normally would. So I would aim, you know, probably after midnight on all of your days off, if you can accommodate that. And so that, um, so you go to bed after midnight, wake up as late as possible and that will kind of shift your circadian rhythm to more of a compromise schedule to more of that night owl schedule so when you're working those night shifts you're more in line with that schedule but you're also able to hang out with your family hang out with your friends you know on your days off as well so that would be number one um, light is important as you mentioned so um, going on those night shifts, you would want to start getting light later in the evening and block light in the morning. Mm. So if I'm, if I have my first night shift scheduled for the week, I would want to potentially wear blue light blocking glasses in the morning up until maybe noon or sunglasses and then get lots of light exposure in that afternoon prior to the night shift. Um, and that will help you shift your circadian rhythm to more of that later schedule. And then continue that while you're on the night shift to block light in the morning. So you want a very cool, comfortable sleep environment, quiet, like a cave. Um, so that's really important. And then get lots of light as soon as you wake up from that daytime sleep. And that will help alert you that okay it's now my current day which you're approaching the night and will help shift your circadian rhythms to a later time i think this is super super helpful for all our you know people that you know have to do it and um the fact that there's some positive you know things that they can look forward to to make them feel somewhat normal because i know that can be super rough especially my my parents out there that you know have to go home and their kids are waking up it can be, and especially that since a lot of them are out of school, it can be a little bit challenging for them. And their performance in the gym kind of suffers a little bit. You know, they're tired and it's, as, as coaches, we don't want to push them. We already know that their body's under 
not the most ideal situation. So I think that these are very gold, you know, golden nuggets here that people can take away on. You said something about even just, you know, using light to, to trigger almost that response that it's time you're sending the signal to your brain to be awake. Um, this kind of leads into one of our other questions uh, revolving around having, you know, we had it combined with music and TV, but even just for people that like to, you know, watch their show on Netflix um, before going to bed with their partner or whatever, and they have the TV on and maybe they don't own, you know, uh, a pair of blue blockers. We mentioned on the show that it could pretend, you know, it could be, it's interrupting maybe their quality of sleep. Um, I don't know like all the science behind it, but I know that you mentioned something about the signaling the brain. What's going on when someone's, you know, watching the TV or on their phone late into the night in a dark room? Mm -hmm. So our circadian rhythm, so that's kind of our 24 hour cycle that all of us have. It's around 24 hours. Um, so we're most sensitive to light at night and closer to more in the morning. So there's a certain period during the day where we're more sensitive to especially the blue light frequency. So many of our devices um, and even our overhead lights and lights from the TV are emitting that blue light that we're most sensitive to that's delaying our circadian rhythm. So when we're when we have lots of bright light in the evening, it sends a signal to our brain to wake up. It also reduces our melatonin. So our melatonin is that sleepiness hormone that helps us to go to sleep. It helps us to maintain sleep. So if someone is, um, you know, and, and there are differences between a TV, let's say a TV far away from your eyes, versus a cell phone or an iPad very close to your eyes. So that's, that's a consideration. There are many people out there who, you know, the TV relaxes them and, and honestly helps them relax and helps them prepare for bed. So the TV may not be um, as bad of a culprit as you on your iPad with it three inches away from your face. Mm -hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but yeah, you know, in general, you want to try and avoid bright light, blue light at night. Um, so you want to put away those devices about an hour before bedtime is a really good piece of advice. And I would, I'll say also that it's not just about the blue light. It's also about the interaction with the device, the content that you're looking at, that can also be alerting or upsetting, you know, so the best piece of advice is to try and put those away about an hour before bedtime. So uh, basically for our listeners, Netflix to an extent is okay, less Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say it like that. Yes. Uh, many, many Sleep scientists may disagree with me on this. A lot, a lot more are even more relaxed about it. But um, yeah, I try and I try and compromise and um, try and limit the light really close to your face, as well as the bright over overhead lights that are that are on as well. Um, no, I think that's I think that's phenomenal, Mike. Uh, you mentioned something in the middle of you explaining that, and this is something that I've always wondered about. How do you 
how, how do you feel about like sleep aids like melatonin or something like that? I mean, are those a good idea? Are those overused? What do you think? Well, I think it depends on what you're using it for. Now, uh, what they find in the research is that melatonin can be useful as a chronobiotic. So what that means is as a way to help shift your circadian rhythm. So if I'm preparing for a trip overseas, you know, heading east, um, taking melatonin in, in the three days prior to the trip around my, you know, probably three hours before my normal bedtime would be a good use of that in that scenario. But if someone's using it day in and day out for, um, to help them fall asleep, it's, it's not very beneficial in that instance. And there are much more better um, treatments out there for insomnia. So for example, if someone's having a problem falling asleep or staying asleep, melatonin is not going to be your best bet or sleep aids for that matter, which has a, have a lot more um, negative consequences. Um, are not going to be your best bet in that situation. The best thing would be to use the gold standard treatment, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, and you can find information on that uh, online. There's online programs that people can sign up for. There are sleep behavioral specialists out there that specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. You know, so it really... It really depends on the situation. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because I know that there's, I, I don't know if there's literature supporting is that your sensitivity even for the melatonin supplement if used uh, incorrectly or maybe too frequently or the amount can matter. Is that, does that uh, have any uh, backing to it? Yeah. One thing, one thing I didn't mention now, um, I think there's mixed results when it comes to your sensitivity. So I think some studies find that, um, you know, you could take melatonin and it wouldn't impact, you could take exogenous melatonin in the form of a pill and it wouldn't necessarily impact your endogenous, so your naturally occurring melatonin. Mm -hmm. But there are other studies that show that not to be the case. So I think more research is needed in that area. Um, specifically when we're talking about it being used as a chronobiotic, actually 0.5 milligrams has been shown to be as effective as, you know, five milligrams, 10 milligrams. Oh, wow. Yeah. When it comes to shifting that circadian rhythm. However, um, I wouldn't recommend anything over three milligrams. So three milligrams may have the added benefit of shifting your circadian rhythm as well as potentially helping you fall asleep a little bit quicker in that jet lag scenario. Um, and then the other thing I wanna mention with melatonin is it's, you, you don't know what you're getting. So you need to get a reliable brand. Mm -hmm. And um, there was one study that found that there were contaminants in the melatonin samples that they were that they were testing, mm -hmm. so there was serotonin, you know, which is not supposed to be in in the bottle. It's an off-label ingredient, um, and also that a lot of the samples that they were testing um, 
you know, the bottle said it was three milligrams or five milligrams or 10 milligrams, but what was the content of what was actually in there was, could have been off by as much as, you know, 300% of what oh, the bottle wow. was saying. Yeah. So um, you definitely want to um, do your research into the supplement that you're using. Do you have any brands off mind that you feel that are reliable? Maybe our listeners that maybe want to try it. You know, we don't, I don't know any particular one that I, that sells it. Yeah. Um, natural factors is actually a good, reliable brand. Okay. Um, I know there are other ones out there. I just don't, and I, I don't get paid for, um, <laughs> they're not my sponsor or anything. Um, but yeah, that is one reliable brand that I know of. Perfect. Uh, boys. Uh, yeah, I had a I had a question there. So you mentioned about um, either people who are insomniacs who either have a hard time going to sleep or staying asleep. Um, in the staying asleep aspect, do you find that there's a certain cause or there's an issue if someone finds that they're constantly um, waking up in the middle of the night for something? And I'm not talking about the instances where you know a door slams or something falls off the you know the the counter and and, and startles you. Something where an instance where you wake up on your own and you're either wide awake, um, what, what would be the, would there any causes to that? Or what should somebody do in those instances? Yes, I think, um, I think looking into potentially sleep apnea. So um, many people who have insomnia also have sleep apnea at the same time. So that could be a reason for the cause, that could be a cause for waking up during the middle of the night. And when we get into REM sleep, so we have um, two kind of main categories of sleep. We have non-REM sleep, which is our kind of our lighter stages of sleep, as well as our deep sleep fits into the non-REM sleep. But we also have REM sleep, which is where you're primarily dreaming, where your muscles are being paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams. And so there could be a situation where um, you know, as we get later on into the night, we have more of that REM sleep occurring and there are REM related sleep apnea where, um, you know, someone has sleep apnea only during the REM stages of sleep. So there may be an association with them waking up later on in the night, um, from sleep apnea. And then at the same time, while being in REM, and that's more likelihood where you will have sleep apnea because your, your tissues in the throat are being relaxed. Um, you know, so there is a potential for, for that. Um, the other potential could be related to the timing of your sleep. So maybe if you're more of an early bird, um, you may just naturally need to wake up earlier on in the morning. Um, and so trying to time your sleep, get to bed early, and then wake up early may be your normal sleep schedule. So that could be another cause. Um, stress can also be an issue as well. So making sure people are de-stressing before bedtime, you know, in that hour when you have those devices put away, um, taking a warm bath or shower has been shown to improve sleep quality. Um, you know, uh, doing relaxing activities, so breathing activities, yoga, 
you know, all of those things that help you de-stress even throughout the day and right before bedtime are going to be helpful in the situation where you're waking up during the middle of the night. Um, but I would say if this problem is occurring at least three times a week, it's been occurring for three months or more, you know, I would say definitely get that checked out. And I think that's important to note that the listeners, you know, we, we check our bases first and not just assume that there's inherently anything wrong. It might be just the environment, the way you're going to bed, you're super stressed out, you, you're working up till the moment you go to bed, you're checking articles about what's going on in the world, um, you got in an argument, you know, a lot of these things can definitely play a role. And I know that, you know, creating almost like a sleep uh, routine or like a pre-sleep routine is can be super advantageous to make sure that your your body is calming down beforehand i also do a thing i think we were uh, a good question you know and helping that deeper sleep the your environment we talked about making sure you're in a dark room um we've i've been reading a lot more evidence coming out just in general talking about temperature a lot of companies are now selling you know pads for your bed how important is the temperature uh for a, you know for maybe to improve your quality of sleep Yes. Uh, ideally, we want to aim for a temperature between 60 to 67 Fahrenheit, which is like 15 to 19 Celsius. Um, and the reason for that is when we do fall asleep, our temperature drops and it helps maintain sleep throughout the night as well. So if we have a hot sleep environment, um, that, that may make you more prone to waking up during the night. Uh, recently, I, I tweeted about this, um, about a study showing that a cooler mattress um, helped people in their sleep quality. So they found that this high heat capacity mattress um, reduced the, the mattress level temperature as well as reduced the core body temperature of the individuals, which helped them get, um, which helped them not wake up as much during the night. So, um, although I, you know, I personally don't have a high heat capacity mattress, um, that may be something for people to consider. And I think for, especially for the night shift workers as well, if we go back to the night shift workers, potentially having, um, a chili pad. So a cooling pad on the mattress, may be really useful for them because naturally our body temperature rises during the day. And so when we're sleeping during the day, our body is kind of doing, you know, its own thing. We're not supposed to be asleep during the day. So our body temperature starts to rise. So having that cool uh, pad, that cool mattress pad may be valuable also for shift workers. That's perfect. I think that's super beneficial. Uh, Gabe? Yeah. Uh, in regards to the temperature keeping you asleep, um, would that be a good option for um, when it's time to wake up? I remember I, I've heard you in, a, in another interview um, saying that um, when you want to talk about getting uh, waking up in the morning that you want to use like not some type of a jarring sound or an alarm, something a little bit more soothing and more relaxing. Um, what about other other ways to wake up, with, whether it be with temperature? Um, I personally, I have uh, an alarm on my watch that it just buzzes, um, so it alerts me that way. Uh, what other, is there a preferred method for waking up, maybe even light? Um, mm -hmm. what, what would you say? 
Yeah, great question. Um, I would say, yeah, if we, there was a recent research study out um, looking at the differences between a buzzing, alerting alarm versus a bird chirping. <laughs> so um, what they found is that in those, in the bird chirping alarm was actually more effective at getting people awake and having them be more alert upon awakening versus the loud, super loud, alarming, you know, alarm. So ideally you want something more soothing to wake up from. Um, you know, the vibration may be an option too, but I kind of put that more in the category of being annoying and alerting or alarming. Um, so I would lean more towards the soothing alarms if you can. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, the, I guess other, other things that you can do to help you be alert is the light, absolutely. So we want to open the shades, you know, right away, get some of that outdoor light. If you can, if you can get outside, um, you know, that's going to be important. And even maybe doing a two minute intense exercise, uh, two minutes of jumping jacks um, may also be useful for people to wake up more easily um, and definitely take advantage of that if you are a night shift worker and you're able to nap during the night to, um, you know, get lots of light upon awakening, do that two minute exercise, intense exercise, and then, yeah, you know, just get up as soon as you can. Don't lay in bed. Don't hit the snooze button. <laughs> it helps me, like, since I wake up sometimes at five in the morning and sometimes the sun hasn't come out just yet, I'll just turn on my bathroom light and it just blasts light into my face. <laughs> and that seems to do the trick, I feel. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Um, a lot of times, you know, during the winter and stuff, the sun doesn't, sun doesn't get out in time. So, so blasting those overhead lights on. Um, in some instances, maybe a seasonal affective disorder light, so a light box or light glasses may be useful if someone's really struggling at waking up um, on more of that normal schedule. Uh, I'll make sure to change my alarm from uh, from my buzzing to an audio of a bird chirping. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, I feel like I mean, like I wake up fine, and um, and then you even mentioned about not hitting the snooze or even laying in bed. I I feel like whenever I wake up, if I do have the time, um, that I'm not uh, in a in a rush to to go anywhere or I hit the snooze too many times. I I find that I lay in bed for like around like you know two to five minutes. I'm there, and then I finally wake up, and I'm I, I guess I get up and I and I go and I'm. I see. I think I'm pretty alert. I mean, who knows? But uh, maybe maybe I'll make some of these changes, and uh, and, and these will everything will change for me. <laughs> yeah, not a big deal. I mean, not a big deal if people lay in bed for a couple of minutes after the alarm. Um, you know, even I do that myself. Yeah, I've I've betrayed myself too many times. I can't trust that I'll just lay in bed. If I stay in bed, <laughs> I am 100% going back to sleep. Uh, I've defaulted to putting my phone on the other side of the room. So I literally have to get up out of bed to turn my alarm off. Very good. Very good piece of advice. Uh, Dr. Amy, I wanted to ask you based on like, we're talking about alarms and I think that this is something also that's super common with 
something I let go about last about a year and a half ago. I I try to break this habit. I still hear my brother on the other side of the apartment still do this when he's waking up early is where you hit the snooze button. You know, you're hitting the snooze button a couple times or leading up to the time that you're supposed to, you know, you absolutely can't sleep past that point. Um, why is it that when I've done snooze, cause I'm, I've been, I was a huge snoozer, um, <laughs> that like you literally wake up so much more tired than the initial, uh, alarm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of one of the reasons you want to, I guess the main reason you want to avoid that snooze button is because it interrupts your sleep cycle and then you have to start all over again. So you're starting, you know, you may be in a more of a deeper stage of sleep or maybe you're in REM sleep or you're dreaming um, and then that alarm goes off and you basically have to start all over again. So you go back into the lightest stage of sleep, you know, maybe a more deeper stage of sleep and then back into that REM sleep. So it's interrupting your sleep cycle. And so that when you hit that snooze button, you wake up again and you may be more in that deeper stage of sleep where you're waking up feeling groggy. So that could be the main reason why you are, um, why you feel more tired after hitting the snooze button. Yeah, it's something that I definitely had to let go because I it it never failed that you hit that snooze button, that eight minute alarm. It's like you go back into a dream cycle, it feels like, and you wake up again. It's like just you feel so groggy and it kind of throws the mood off, I feel, for the rest of like the morning. Yeah, I would say best piece of advice um, is to set that alarm as late your at your latest possible time so that that's when you have to wake up. And you know you don't have the luxury of hitting that snooze button, and it's not going to be interrupting your sleep cycle. Um, you'll just set it at that latest time, and you know there you go, you're off. You have to get up. No, I think that's that's brilliant advice, just because I heard this. I read this in a self development book from like a high performer, and but this has been uh, backed by science from I've other other sleep professionals have mentioned this that this is super helpful if you are someone that struggles being a morning person just kind of setting yourself up getting out of the sleep cycle is just as important as getting yourself in um i kind of wanted to kind of shift uh, gears a little bit and we have a lot of you know a lot of our people are trying to better themselves through fitness uh, we know that you know if you're a night shift worker or you're just someone that is struggling right now to get adequate sleep what are some of the the common things that you see maybe with you know athletes or people that are trying to maximize performance when they're when their sleep is consistently not well Mm -hmm. So what are some strategies for them? Yeah, like what are some, or, or what are, or actually what are the, the, yeah, the sleep strategies for it and also the effects on, you know, that could potentially affect on their performance and even on our demographic of people, people that are trying to change their body composition. Yeah, so there is, there is a lot of impact of the sleep deprivation on, for example, food choices, for example, you know, how hungry you feel, how full you feel, so, and even calorie consumption. Um, so what we do find with sleep deprivation is that there is 
um, more ghrelin release. So the, the appetite hormone related to feeling hungry. So you feel more hungry with sleep deprivation. Um, you, you, there is less leptin released, uh, which is the feeling of full, um, you know, basic, basic uh, mechanism. Um, so you feel more hungry, you feel less full, you, and this leads to poor food choices. So we see more craving for sugar, more craving for fat when people are sleep deprived. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a biological mechanisms for this. So um, because of those hormones that are being released, and when we look at a bunch of different studies together, we see that there's about a 400, um, 400 calories, calorie increase with uh, sleep deprivation. So um, it can definitely impact your nutrition. Uh, as far as food, as far as uh, exercise goes, you know, people generally it has to do more with not necessarily the muscles not performing well, but it's more the impact on your mind. So you don't feel like going as far, even though your muscles are, are ready to go. Um, you, your perceived levels of exertion are, are higher. You think you are um, the same at the same level of exercise that you are doing sleep deprived versus well rested when you're sleep deprived you feel like you're exercising a lot harder than you really are so um those are some some of the main impacts you know as well as there are health consequences as well but for athletes i think um framing sleep in regards to how it will impact your performance is really useful for that group, um, you know, to really frame it in that way. That makes perfect sense. And I just, I can even attest personally when I, when I, when I've had a hard training session, I've really pushed myself and I get a poor night's sleep for whatever reason, how much harder the recovery, the soreness or the achiness in the joints versus a great training intense session with a, an amazing night's sleep where you feel rested the way your body composition can can be affected was really mind-blowing and I didn't make these connections until probably like later into my 20s um, just because when I was younger I would work out and go out and stay out late so I didn't notice as much as uh, much progress until later on when I kind of started prioritizing just maximizing sleep because I'm like, I gotta be, I gotta fix this area of my life if I really want to take this and make some progress. Same, same. So I was a college athlete. I played college basketball and, um, you know, same thing there was back, you know, this was back in the early 2000s anyway. So there wasn't a lot of evidence on how sleep can impact performance. So that was one thing. Uh, the coaches didn't really stress it much at all. Um, and we didn't really, you know, the coach would say, um, make sure you're getting a good night's sleep. But that was kind of the end of it. It wasn't, there wasn't any information on how to do that, how much I should be getting, um, you know, and so it's not, you can kind of get by when you're younger, um, not doing these things. Um, but then once you start getting older, um, it can have a huge impact on on your outcomes 
I think that's important for athletes too. If you're trying to maximize performance, I think it's super common. I'm pro- I'm pretty sure you've experienced the excitement maybe before a game day, um, you're or you're anticipating an event the following day where you notice that you're restless and. Uh, I think taking the practices that you mentioned earlier of maybe, you know, maybe using a supplement or really trying to maximize your sleep uh, routine going leading into an, a day before an event or a sporting event is, would be super beneficial and make a big difference for the athletes out there. Absolutely. So there is some evidence that banking sleep, so getting more sleep leading into a sleep deprivation mm-hmm. period. And this is, primarily a non-athlete. So they find that um, if you can get more sleep an hour or two in the week before a sleep deprivation period um, each and every night, that you're going to perform way better during that sleep deprivation period. And they've also found that in athletes as well. And so, you know, typically an athlete uh, or even a recreational athlete, um, a competitive athlete or a recreational athlete don't get the best night's sleep prior to that important competition. So having some of that sleep banked ahead of time is gonna be really beneficial for people. And I think it takes away some of the anxiety. If I can get, you know, in a week or two leading up to that important competition, if I can get just a little bit more sleep each night, um, I'm not going to be as anxious if I get a poor night's sleep right before the competition. That's amazing. I didn't even think about that. I, I did hear you mention that on another uh, another interview, and I just but that's that makes perfect sense because the anxiety. I mean, you're just so excited and anxious for that event that it's, it's it might be just hard to get yourself settled down that one particular night. So sleep banking is. I didn't even think about that. That's awesome. Um, I kind of also wanted to touch subject on, on, you mentioned briefly naps. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, if you can somehow manage to get a light nap. Uh, and I also heard this on another fellow, uh, friends podcast that you interviewed with that you mentioned different ways of incorporating naps. And I just wanted you to, if you can touch, uh, touch up on that for, for us. Yes. So um, primarily, I would say even for an everyday nine to five or everyday worker, um, adding in a short nap less than 30 minutes is going to be beneficial for you, even if you are getting enough nighttime sleep. So the research shows that you're more productive, you have a boost in mood, you have a boost in alertness after that short, uh, you know, 20 minute power nap. And it doesn't even have to be 20 minutes, so it could be even as little as five to 10 minutes. So trying to find a little bit of time, maybe during your lunch break, to potentially even go out to your car, um, while many of us are still working from home, so you have more of an opportunity for that. But finding um, just a little bit of time, uh, in the time it takes you to grab a Starbucks coffee, you could be napping and be performing better. So, Napping is huge. I would say there are different types of naps. So there's more of that power nap, less than 30 minutes, which is beneficial. But for people who are continually not getting enough nighttime sleep, for example, a swimmer who has to have practice, you know, has to be in the pool by 6.30 a.m., you know, they're just not going to be able to fall asleep on time. Um, in order to get enough nighttime sleep. So in that situation, 
we'd want to do more of a longer nap opportunity, more of a 90 minute opportunity kind of, to kind of make up for some of that lost nighttime sleep. And for me, when I get a poor night's sleep, um, you know, I have three small uh, kids, so they wake me up a lot. Um, I try and keep a consistent wake up schedule in that situation, even if I've been up for two hours during the night. And what I'll do is I'll try and keep that wake up at the same time, um, but I'll try and add in, in a longer afternoon nap to try and make up for that lost nighttime sleep. Uh, I think the key for people is you don't want to, you don't want to take the nap too close to bedtime. So you want to make sure that you're um, taking that nap between the hours of, you know, noon to 4 p.m. Um, because when we start napping later and later, it can impact our ability to fall asleep at night. I think that's perfect advice because someone might, after getting home at five o'clock, six o'clock in the afternoon, they take a little nap and then they're up until like two o'clock in the morning because they may have, may have done a little bit too much of a nap. Mike? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wanted to, and I'm, we're probably going to wind this down because we know we are wanting to, um, you know, get back to your life. But um, real quick, <laughs> is there, I, I understand, and this is something that I've struggled with myself, is there any correlation between the position of a person that they sleep in uh, compared to others? I, I guess that's a complicated way of saying, is there a better position to sleep in than others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there has been a little bit of research in this area. Um, and from a, like a spinal alignment, uh, my cousin is a chiropractor. So for him, you know, the best position is on your back. Uh, however, sleeping on your side is good as well. Um, but if you look at a higher risk of sleep apnea, so there's a higher risk of sleeping on your back for sleep apnea because um, the gravity of your tissues being put, basically can cover the airway. Mm -hmm. So um, I think for a lot of people, uh, sleeping on your side would be the ideal position with a pillow in between your legs, I'm told, um, to help support that alignment. And so for me, I think um, sleeping on your side is, is ideal um with maybe sleeping on your back a close second no i think that's 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 a good one because i know people that may be sleeping on their stomach you know maybe be blocking and putting pressure on unnecessary ears and if you're causing any type of discomfort it could definitely just you're not sleeping as as comfortably as you could mm -hmm. absolutely um yeah and getting back to what the research shows um, those who are reporting better quality sleep, they find um, are more likely to sleep on their side as well. Um, Dr. Amy, I wanted to ask you uh, your thoughts. You know, it doesn't have to be super thorough because I know that, you know, I think that most people can agree that taking caffeine later in the evening, you're going to most, depending on how sensitive you are, could interrupt your uh your your sleep or just getting into sleep but what do you think is like a good cutoff time for caffeine or how to utilize caffeine effectively where without it you know messing that up for you that sleep that that is a a, a passionate topic of mine um 
I am a avid decaf coffee drinker. Um, so, you know, I, I got my master's, my PhD, I was sucking down the coffee, um, you know, drinking a lot of coffee during my graduate school. Um, and it wasn't until recently in the past two or three years where I, I just wanted to completely cut off caffeine. Um, and I noticed a huge difference in the quality of my sleep. So I felt like I was sleeping back to when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't waking up as much. Um, I just felt like I was getting a deeper quality sleep. And that, that, that also is shown in the research. So, um, people who are avid coffee drinkers and then they go off caffeine, they do find an improvement in sleep quality. Um, you know, I don't want to, caffeine is the most widely consumed, um, substance, you know, a psychoactive substance out there. So, and it's enjoyable to drink. Um, so I think for people, you just want to be my, one of my lines is, you know, drink coffee strategically, not automatically. Um, and so really be aware that it can impact your sleep quality without you even realizing it. There was a recent study in adolescence where they had them drink an energy drink with dinner and they found it totally drastically reduced the amount of deep sleep that they were getting. And when they asked the participants, do you think this impacted your sleep? You know, the majority said no. So um, it's very difficult to know how it is impacting your sleep. But I would say for, for most of us who metabolize caffeine normally, um, you know, having a cutoff of around noon um, is a good time for people to, to end that. And if you did get a poor night's sleep the night before, maybe switch to a lower caffeine content, maybe a green tea in the afternoon if you're really struggling you know, uh, with your levels of alertness. I love that you, um, you mentioned about the energy drink or just caffeine at dinner because it's super common in, uh, I think European cultures as well. I know for sure in Hispanic cultures that they'll have the black coffee with a piece of bread after a meal. Um, I don't know what, uh, I know a lot of my, my, my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents do this. Um, it be, and, it, and it's almost like they don't think that it might be affecting their sleep, but it could be leading, you know, potentially down a lot of people having issues uh, minor that it starts to kind of accumulate over time. But it's like, it's, it's hard to argue it because it's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there are differences in the way people metabolize caffeine too. So that's something to consider. Uh, if you are a fast metabolizer of caffeine, um, you know, you, the coffee in the afternoon may not have as big of an impact as someone who's a very slow metabolizer of caffeine. So um, the way you metabolize caffeine is also an important consideration. But um, getting back to the culture thing, I mean, yeah, it's pretty hard pretty hard to argue <laughs> with, with those cult, those cultural um, things that have been embedded. No, I think that's true. <laughs> but I mean, people will do what they do. But I mean, if anyone listening to this podcast can take away these, 
these valuable tips and points. Uh, Amy, I want to bug you with one more question because I know we have a lot of, you know, people that are trying to just improve their body composition, improve maybe their performance in the gym, um, or their, their cognitive focus for the following day. And I know eating late at night is super common with people that are maybe busy. Uh, do, are there certain food? I know cutoff time can matter just for digestive reasons and possibly could interrupt the quality of sleep is from what I was reading. But is there is there any type of foods that you would just totally avoid or possibly recommend and replacement to make sure that you don't you actually maximize a, a good night's sleep? Yeah. So uh, generally, you know, ideally we want to avoid heavy meals four to six hours before bedtime. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you are digesting that food and sleep is a time for rest. And if you're, if your body's busy digesting things, you know, it's not getting that good quality sleep that it needs. Um, however, you know, if someone's hungry, a light snack would be, would be perfectly fine before bedtime. Uh, in general, you want to avoid spicy, spicy meals, uh, fatty meals before bedtime. So a snack that kind of combines carbs with some protein is, is ideal for sleep quality. So maybe a bowl of cereal with protein from the milk, some fat from the milk, as well as some carbs would be, would be a good idea. You know, just trying to combine um, carbs and protein and then trying to limit that meal, not make it too, too big, you know, right before bedtime. I think that was just, it was interesting just because we have another guest that just mentioned that his doctor recommended him trying to almost do an intermittent fast, but in reverse where they cut out a big, they cut out their big dinner and they swapped it because a lot of people will skip breakfast first thing in the morning, but a lot of people will have the big meal is at night due to skipping that, that initial breakfast meal. Um, I think that's, it might definitely have some value there for, you know, the way you feel and the way your body can kind of set the tone for rest. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing around with the timing of your meals, um, you know, the composition of those meals, um, you know, just playing around around with that because there's a lot of individual differences in how you respond to to food. No, that's amazing, Dr. Amy. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for the listeners that maybe want to catch up with you and see what you're up to, and you know, make sure that they they don't miss a beat. You know, where can they find you? So I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Sleep for Sport. Uh, I'm also working on a website, which isn't, it's not quite there yet, but I'm hoping to have that done in the next few months. And it's sleepwelltowin.com. So people can look out for me there. We'll, we'll plug that all into the show notes so people can follow you. And I'm sure you'll let you know, your audience know on Instagram that the website's up and running so they can check out anything that you have going on. Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And for the listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and drop us a, a rating and review um, and subscribe if you're new. And if you like the podcast, if uh, follow us on our, on our Instagram pages at the next level show, you can follow my personal Instagram at John Alva seven. Gabe is at prime and glory. And Mr. Mike is at Mike Nellis PT.